Praise be to God. As we gather and wrapping up our time in Luke, we see a lot of different agendas here as we are no stranger to controversy in the judicial system with lawyers and juries having their own agendas. Years, decades later, truth always seems to come out. And then without the judges and the jury's agendas, all of a sudden with truth or facts not being misinterpreted or interpreted a certain way, people are released from prison, the innocent are finally set free and there's justice. In this case, we see humility on display and probably the most in your face and really convicting way where Jesus, the God who created everything, has come to do what he said he was going to do, how he said he was going to do it, and yet everyone was a little confused or extremely confused. And all the judges were like, yes, I'm in charge. I have this authority. And John tells us, no, dude, you don't have any authority unless my dad gave it to you. But you can keep playing along. And we see Luke's gospel, he's telling a new believer, Theophilus, and he's reminding him, remember, this is how all this went down. And so there's no question that people who thought they were in authority, that placed Jesus on trial, got him convicted and crucified so that what was prophesied would be true, so that the gospel would have its full effect for us, for you and me. We see three courtroom scenes, and then we see three encounters around the cross. First, we see in these three courtroom scenes the reality that we need to humbly receive the truth, and pride so quickly and so easily gets in the way and blinds us from seeing truth. So as we humbly receive the truth, truly, peacefully, our souls will rest in the finished work of Christ. Augustine said that our soul will not find rest until it fully rests in Jesus. So as we humbly receive the truth, see the truth of of what Jesus said about you and me and our need to be set free from sin and that he's the savior, then our souls will truly, peacefully, our souls will rest in the finished work of Christ. So first, we see that there is, in the courts, if there's no truth, then there's no justice. Simply put, So there can be no justice where there is no truth. So we see the end of chapter 22, verses 66 through verse 25 of chapter 23. Jesus is arrested and brought before the courts, and he's accused. And the Jews in the the lower court, they make this case. And the Jewish elders, in verse 66 were the group of leaders called the Sanhedrin, and they brought Jesus before this religious court, saying he claimed to be the Messiah. And in verse 69, Jesus went on and, and used the, the title Son of Man because it was a, a messianic, it was a prophecy that the Jews were waiting for their Redeemer, their Savior, the Son of Man to come. And the, and the Jewish leaders understood Jesus' claim that he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the one God sent to save, but they rejected it. The whole point of Luke's writing was to convince you that Jesus was 
the son of man, that he was that. And so he gets to the, the, the end here and he's saying, look, Jesus claimed to be the son of man. He claimed to be the one from David's line to be the king of kings and Lord of lords. He claimed to be the one who would be our priest. And we'll see how that ties in at the end. And so that didn't work out too well. And they, uh, they realized they can't put him to death because they're, they're under Roman rule. So they go from the lower court to Pilate's court, the state, the Supreme Court, to hopefully convince and persuade Pilate that this guy's not just claiming to be the king of the Jews, but he's actually telling people not to pay taxes to Caesar and not to pay taxes to Rome, which is gonna look bad on you, Pilate, because it's gonna continue to stir up controversy and it's gonna end up being a demise of your rule. And so he's, they're trying to play into his pride because the Romans conquered the Jews and, and they're the ones who had to put him to death. And so they accused Jesus of misleading the nation, opposing paying taxes to Caesar, and saying that Jesus was the Messiah, the king. And so when Pilate asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you've said so. And so Pilate the chief, said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in him. He's not guilty. And so then in the conversation it comes up that he stirs up people, he's teaching the Galileans, and Pilate being discerning was like, hey, Galilee, that's Herod's district. Let's get him out of here. He can be Herod's problem. So he goes and Herod is so excited to see Jesus. After Pilate in, finished his interrogation, he doesn't find him guilty, so he sends him to, to Herod. And Herod is excited to see Jesus. He, he says in verse eight, when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad, for he longed had long desired to see him. Isn't that interesting? After hearing about Jesus giving sight to the blind, feeding 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead, here's a ruler who's like, finally I get to see Jesus. I think if you're the ruler, you could get on a chariot and go see Jesus. Like I don't think that'd be a problem for Herod, but he was too busy. He was too prideful being selfish. And he's like, finally, the he, Jesus comes to my house and I get to be entertained. I get to have a front row seat to the Jesus show. This is going to be great. And he wanted to see miracles. He wanted to see these things. And it's interesting because Pilate wanted to know what was true. Are you the king? Okay, you're the king. Okay, I don't find him guilty. I don't know what this means for me, but Jesus is the king, I guess. And Herod's like, cool, do some more tricks and shows. I want to be entertained. And then Jesus didn't do that. So then the chief priest, scribes, stood by vehemently accusing him. Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in a purple robe to, to mock him as saying, okay, you're the king. Well, here's some royalty colors. We're going to send you back to Pilate. So Pilate gets him back, talks to him more. He's like, no. Another account, his wife was warned in a dream not to have anything to do with him. So Pilate's like, okay, hey, I don't want to get mixed up in this. This is getting intense, super quick. And there's this, this tradition we have around the Passover where we release uh, a convicted felon, a criminal, we release them to the crowd. And so he's like, perfect. Like Jesus was just praised and welcomed. They wore, waved palm branches. They loved Jesus. This is going to be a no-brainer. I'll put Jesus, the Savior, the healer, miracle worker, up against Barabbas. And the crowd's totally going to want Jesus to be set free. So... After 
Herod realizes, you know what, this isn't working out. I'm going to mock you. Sends him back to Pilate. Pilate receives him, doesn't find guilt in Jesus either. Realizes, hey, this is a cool way I can, I can get him out. John tells the account when Pilate says, so you're king then. And Jesus said, you, you say that I'm king. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responds, what is truth? What is truth? I had a a hat when I was doing youth ministry in San Diego and it said truth on it, soul armor. And I was talking with the student and he's like, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. Like, what is truth? And it was like, oh yeah, I heard in this rap song this whole idea of truth being subjective. Now, it's, it's really interesting looking at this. The facts can be misconstrued. They can be misinterpreted. Truth, though, in its definition, it's either true or it's not. And, and then you get into philosophy. It's like, well, what's true for you can be true for you, and what's true for me can be true for me, meaning there's, it's subjective to your conditioning, to your upbringing, to your culture, to the color of your skin. And then it's all of a sudden it gets into these... Con- Confusion, confusion occurs when what one truth says another truth is a lie. So when they're saying, okay, you could be king, but I can be king, there's only one king. And Jesus is clarifying, I've come for this purpose. This is truth. And if you hear my voice, you know what's true. I, the God of the universe has been saying to you, there's going to be a savior. And the Jews were angry because they had their holiday being disrupted by Jesus. They just wanted to kill him real quick and get back to celebrating how God saves them. And God promised to send a savior. And they were tired of Jesus ruining their celebration of Passover, celebrating how God saved them and is going to save them. So they wanted to kill the way that God was saving them, Jesus. It's ironic, but it's true. When you think about it, we do the same thing. We're like, oh, if you could just give me more, God. He's like, I've given you Jesus. What more do you want? I know, but just another job or just another paycheck or just this. And I'm guilty of it. We always want more. And we're right there with Pilate. What is truth? He knows what truth is, but it's going to cost him. And he's been trying to discern what truth is so he could maintain or get a promotion in his current role, ruling. Herod wanted to be entertained. Pilate wanted to use Jesus to get a promotion and to be seen as someone who the people could trust. And so he's trying to please the people and himself, and, and it's, it's not working. And so the core of public opinion sneaks in here, we see. And this is where we've seen the core of public opinion, the perception of reality, overtake time and time again, whether it's a situation at work or it's a, a grand political situation in the world where all of a sudden you see the crowd, you see mobs, and it's hard. I mean, even on a basketball team, one out of five, you're on the court and one person wants to run this play, the other person wants to run this play. It's hard to go upstream. It's hard to be the one that stands out. It's hard to be the one person in a board meeting and and say, no, this is a bad idea. It's hard to be the one person in a thousand, 20,000. It's hard to be the one parent that stands up and says, hey, we should not do this. It's hard to be the one person, and yet the whole crowd hears Pilate's idea. And there's a verse 17 that some manuscripts leave out, so I'm always 
confused when I'm reading the Bible and you go from 16 to 18 and you hear this story enough that you're like, wait, doesn't, oh yeah, there's a cultural thing where Pilate releases a prisoner. So that's missing in some manuscripts. So in the ESV, it makes note of it at the bottom. So, so Pilate goes before the crowd and says, hey, public opinion, here's what I think we should do. I'm going to release Jesus over to you because he's innocent. And, and there, the other criminal I could release is Barabbas, but we're not even going to talk about him because we know he's a murderer, a criminal. He's, he's guilty. Jesus is innocent. Here you guys go. And they shout him down and say, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who's been thrown into prison for insurrection, murder. And he tries three times and they keep yelling, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus, release Barabbas. It's interesting because there's not much written about Barabbas. I mean, you go home and, and your mom's like, hey, Barabbas, good to see you. I thought you were going to die today. I know, me too. Weird thing. Jesus showed up. They keep yelling at Jesus, save us. It's like, where's Barabbas? He's not dying today. I saved Barabbas. I already took his place. The gospel is God seeing you in your sin, sending Jesus to take your place. But Barabbas doesn't run to Jesus. He's like, sweet, I'm out of here. The gospel is offered, but Barabbas is indifferent. It's, it's amazing. It's, we don't know. But all we have is we see him just walk away. I wonder if you're going to walk away today and leave Jesus saying, look, I paid the price for your sin. I stood in your place. This is what's true. He deserved death and Jesus took his place. The interesting thing is we see the pride continue from the, the courts. Barabbas walks away. Jesus takes his place. And where there's no humility, there's no forgiveness. Because in verse 25, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. And they delivered Jesus over to their will. In verse 26, we see Simon of Cyrene, even though Simon Peter said he was going to be there carrying the cross, it was actually Simon of Cyrene that got to, to have that pleasure and opportunity and was humbled. Because as we see this, this truth play out, as we get closer to the crucifixion where there's no humility, there's no forgiveness. Humility is one of those things where you can't, you know, when, when you're doing a job interview, it's like, hey, tell us about yourself, any characteristics and Oftentimes it's like, oh, I want to tell them I'm humble. And it's like, I can't do that because that's boasting in my humility. And there, it's, I mean, truth might be subjective to you. It's not for me, okay? So I can't be humble and brag about it. Like, it doesn't work. The definition of humility is to think less of yourself, not, not or think, think of yourself less. I mixed it up. It's think of yourself less, not think less of yourself. So not belittling yourself, but think of your desires Less often, think of more about others' desires and their needs. And so humility on display is repentance. When you blow it, be quick to repent. Right away. Barabbas walks away from Jesus. He doesn't come to him and, I mean, maybe he gave him a little eye wink and like thumbs up or a little shaka, like, see on the flip side, Jesus? I don't know. We don't have that in the text. Luke left that out, maybe because it probably wasn't there. But humility on display is repentance. When you think about it, when someone's repentant, you're not like, oh, they're such a jerk. They're so prideful. When they're broken over their sin and, oh, man, I blew it. I sinned against you. 
I lied, I cheated, I stole, I got drunk again, I said I wouldn't drink again, I lost my temper, like I'm broken, I need to get help, I'm gonna check myself in, I'm gonna go get the help, I'm gonna do the, when there's repentance and you didn't catch them, oftentimes when you catch someone, right, guilty, sneaking a little cookie when I was a kid, I wasn't repentant, I was just bummed I got caught and now I can't watch TV or ride my bike with my friends. I was not repentant, I was just really sad and angry that I got caught. Repentance is when you go with crumbs all over your face and chocolate smeared on your shirt right before church and you're like, so, and your parents know, right? You're wearing the evidence all here, but you're like, I I sinned. I ate the cookie you told me I shouldn't eat. I, I know I didn't have a meeting late at work. I just went by the bar and I had too many and, and I had to get an Uber. That's why the car's not in the driveway. Like I, I did the thing I said I wouldn't do. And that's actually scripture. Paul says that. I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. At certain levels, but that's repentance. That's coming before you get caught. Humility on display is repentance. We see there can be no forgiveness where there's no humility. We see a, a kind of a humorous scene here. Simon, it's Passover. He's, he's from out of town, so his wife's probably stressed out. She forgot the eggs at the market. It's like, we got family coming over. It's Passover, huge deal, big deal, celebrating how God saved us from the oppression in Egypt. Simon, get to the market, get eggs quick. Don't talk to anybody. And then Simon's running through town, like me, cutting in front of people, being a little selfish, tripping over people, fighting through, gets to the front of all the traffic jam and realizes there's a guy about to be, there's three guys about to be crucified. And they're like, hey, Simon, you're strong. Carry this guy's cross. Simon's like, are you kidding me? My wife is literally going to kill me. So he carries Jesus' cross. We'll see what Jesus gets the opportunity as he catches his breath to say next. But you know, Simon had a story to tell when he got home. Where were you? And why is your robe all bloody? Go change. Family's coming over. Save the story. He's like, what? Wasn't. <sighs> okay. It's super interesting because Jesus takes an opportunity to refer to the women that were following him. Daughters of Jerusalem, he says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's kind of a cryptic, like, really, Jesus? One last hallmark moment? This is all you got? Simon's wearing your blood-soaked cross. His wife's gonna just unload on him when he gets home late, and you got, that's all you got for us. Like, love Jesus at the hallmark. You're like, okay. He's mourning for those who are going to mourn for themselves. He knows the weight and gravity of sin. He knows that we're imprisoned by sin. He knows our problem is not political. It's not with your neighbor. It's not with your spouse. There's a spiritual enemy and we love and are are just so attracted to sinning. And he came as the king to set us free and to bring us back to him. And he knows, as our, our mission statement says, in, in John 17, to go. He's praying, don't take the believers out of the world, but may they endure while they're in the world and not of the world. It's hard to live in this world. And to, to not talk about the suffering and the tragedies and the confusions and distractions that are on top of our own sin, 
Jesus is like, man, I'm sorry, I can't get you out yet. But there's an amazing party that's gonna happen. I told you a lot about it earlier. He doesn't have time to go into that, but we have it written down. We know that he set them up for the wedding feast of the lamb, but he knows as he suffers, they're gonna suffer because they believe in his name, because he's gonna walk out of the grave a couple days later. So we see that he goes, we see from the crowd, and then we see the, the chain of mourners, and then we go to the circle of mockers, which it's a perfect picture of humility as he looks back at the women mourning and knows it's gonna be so hard for them. As we looked at last week, the, the first martyrs that were targeted in large number were women. In church history, attests to that, but we don't really talk about that in the church because it's super, I mean, it's hard to even think about like women and, and girls being thrown into the arena and being persecuted first, but Peter's wife died as a martyr before he did to try and persuade Peter. And he even bounced. He tried to leave and Jesus was like, well, Peter, time out. Come on, turn around, get back in there. And as we see, he was humble and putting their knees before his own on the way to the cross. The circle of mockers is made up not just of the soldiers that are mocking him, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, in verse 37, that they actually went and bought a sign. They had the sign maker down the street make a sign for Jesus' cross. They were very thoughtful of Jesus. They, they placed a sign over his head that were as actually more humorous and sarcastic. That's not a 21st century thing. They had a lot of sarcasm. They put the sign up saying, here's the king of the Jews. They were mocking him. They had the crown of thorns, which like two to three inch long thorns. They made a crown of to pierce his skull to mock him even more. And the reason I, I make reference to our modern crosses where Jesus is, is high, because I always thought that he was like super high. And I'm like, that's so, they must have had a crane or like a forklift to like lift him up because that's a lot of work to get a guy that high up. But that, that's silly. They're killing him. The Romans were professional murderers. And so they, the, the cross was actually at eye level, not because it was easier necessarily, but because then you could have eye contact with the criminal and you could curse at them, spit on them, throw rocks and mud, or just kick stuff on them as you walked by, and, and which would add further insult to injury. So you have the soldiers doing that at eye level, gambling for his, his garments, which is prophesied, so they're fulfilling scripture yet again. And then you have all of the bystanders adding insult to injury as well. And so we see this entire scene, the Lord has another hallmark moment. This one's a little bit more to his, to his character in the sense of being very compassionate and it's, it's easier, it's not as cryptic to discern. Verse 34 says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And in our day and age, when, when the morals, there's no real basis to have a conversation, when, when people act the similar thing here where all of a sudden the mobs go, there's really only one way to follow Jesus in his teaching and living as, as we aim to do and to be loving is to respond this way, as we know that Jesus sees. But as Paul writes in Romans 1, they have a debased mind. Their mind is, is gone into the full pride and selfish indulgence that leads to where we are. So we pray, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're, they've been blinded, their mind's distorted, 
They don't have the sight we do. They don't have the thoughts we do because God's renewed our mind through Scripture as believers. And so the Lord is saying there's judgment coming. There's going to be a pouring out of of my wrath and my judgment, and it's true, and it's just, but because I'm the God who loves, I've sent my son to save you. Remember this whole Passover thing? You're celebrating how I saved you out from the hand of the Egyptians. That was actually an image that you're under the slavery of sin, and you need someone to save you and redeem you, and that's my son who you're crucifying on Passover. That's how perfect God's plan was that the Jews would have known this is the celebration where God saves us from slavery. And Jesus came and said, look, you need to be reborn. You need to be set free from sin. I'm that savior. And forgiveness is possible so that the relationship between us and God could be restored. That's the only problem. Everyone loves to debate and have these political things and put forth bills and amendments and read the Constitution. No, read the Bible. When we turn our hearts to God, when we turn our eyes to God, we repent and we pray, then healing comes. Then restoration comes. When we first are forgiven by God, then we know how to forgive one another. That's true revolution. And that's why when Jesus was put on the cross, everything got restored. Everything started the movement of the church, of the gospel being driven throughout the entire world by the Spirit indwelling in believers. And it starts right here, which is still oddly debated because it's God and he's the author of salvation. So he saves who he wants, when he wants. And yes, we look for fruit, as James will tell us, if you're, you're more type A, you're really gonna read James and you go, yeah, faith without works is dead. Where's the evidence of a, of a saved soul? And they're not cussing anymore and, and they wear the right clothes and they act a certain way. But... God is the God who saves. And if you're not dead, then God's not done chasing you down with his goodness and mercy and love. And we see the the thieves that he's hanging in between. One starts cussing at him, yelling at him, hurling these insults in verse 39. And Jesus remaining humble, thinking about others more importantly than himself. He's quiet, listening. And they say, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. Some people go all the way to their end, continuing in their unrepentance, being prideful. And the second criminal says, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? That's that trust in God, that God's going to accomplish his will and his purpose. Don't you fear God since you're undergoing the same punishment But we're being punished justly. We sinned, we killed some people, we robbed them. This is our punishment. This guy gave sight to the blind, legs to the lame. Lazarus was dead and he called them out of the grave. He's innocent. The only thing he's guilty of is being truthful. We're being punished justly. We're getting what we deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's interesting because so often we would think Jesus would be like, oh, it's unfortunate because you didn't go to connection class. You're not a member of a church. Man, you never went to Bible study. Like, I don't know if you're ready to go to heaven. Maybe purgatory first. Maybe you can work 
No, there's always this thought of we need to work, we need to earn, we need fruit, which yes, there will be fruit if we believe. God will make us new, he will change us, but is that necessary for salvation? No, because God's the author of salvation. He chooses when and who and how he'll save. And it's crazy because there was this this comment that C.S. Lewis wrote, when we think about people who are really like the newer word, salty, rough around the edges, you know, barely saved. Some people say like they just believed in Jesus, but there's not a whole lot of evidence. Like they haven't fully surrendered a lot, but they understand they're a sinner. Everything they say, think, and do was against God. And now God's humbled them and they've repented and said, yes, these things I've done wrong. I trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And you go, man, they have a lot of work to do though, to, to be obedient and doing the things God's called us to do. But you think about the worst person that's a believer and and the least obedient, and then you think about the best person that's an unbeliever. And he said, how much better would they be, though, at loving people if they were a believer? Because they're not perfect. But how much more would God be able to use them if they were following Christ? And you think about the worst person that you know as a believer, how much worse would they be? And I, I got to hang out with a guy recently that told me his story Uh, And it was so detailed and so dark and disturbed and decrepit, and yet God saved him. And he's still in process, but it's not as far and maybe as fast as as we'd hoped, you know, and even he. But where he came from, you're like, wow, yeah, going back, we see God doing a lot of work there. And the most amazing thing is God saved him on his deathbed. He was right there at the end, and Jesus said, you'll be with me. So that encouragement for us is are we here for a relationship with, with the people next to us? Are we here hoping I'm a good pastor and I'll be a great pastor for you? Jesus here is helping us. We're here for Jesus. And I'm growing and you're growing as our role as a church to care for each other, but we're here for him. And he's the one who saves us. Truly, you'll be with me and paradise is his promise. And we put the scenes together. Judgment is coming. God is a forgiving God. And paradise is offered. Is our hope in eternity, knowing that we are going to be judged by everything we say, think, and do, we need Jesus to save you and me. Because there's all kinds of stuff from our past. There's all stuff that's going to happen today and our future. But the gospel is Jesus said, look, I know. And this guy needs me to hang on the cross next to him for him to see humility on display. That I'm going to think more about him than myself. I'm going to Ask God to forgive them. You know those moments where you're like, okay, Jesus seems legit, but if he loses his cool on the cross, that's it. I'm not believing. You have those people, right, who are like, I need a sign. I need a sign. And it's like, how many times is God going to give you a sign? And finally, Jesus is like, dude, I I don't know how much time we got left. Like, I can't do any more miracles. I'm here with you. And he's like, okay, can you remember me? Yeah, I remember you. Let's go. And they went like, that's how much God loves you. He'll go to the cross. And say, okay, criminal, no one wants you in heaven, but I do. Are you ready? You gonna believe in me now? Okay, you are perfect, because I'm ready to go. And he's like, okay, God, my spirit's in your hands. But do we say that when we're suffering? Do we say that when we feel like we're going through the crucifixion? Okay, God, my spirit's in your hands. Forgive my boss for just destroying me in front of, forgive my spouse Maybe I, I am, I'm not perfect, but forgive them and, and, and forgive me and, and help me respond the right way. My spirit's in your hands. 
okay, forgive me how I treated my kids. They need a better father to show them Christ's love. Do we put our spirit in God's hand? Because that's where we find peace. And that's where we can be humble. Once our spirit and our soul is in God's hands, then we can humbly walk into those situations and say, okay, you need to see this for me. You need to hear this for me. And we're gonna put other people and think of other people's needs more importantly than our own. So for those who've yet to believe, I pray that you'd be able to admit that anything you've said, thought, or done, you're not perfect, which means you're a sinner and you're gonna be judged. The horrible reality of that is God's perfect at judgment. He's not persuaded by public opinion and unfortunately, he doesn't grade on a curve. Fortunately, he said, hey, you're not perfect, but my son is, he'll die for you, believe in that payment and you're good. It's free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Now, believe it and start learning more about the gospel so you can look like Jesus, love like Jesus, and be that in any area of your life, whether you're at work, at home, with your neighbor. And if you're a believer, you've already received the good news. God's given you this humility. We should not repeat the arrogance and the selfishness or the stubbornness that we used to be and used to walk in. But we need to boast in all that God is and has done in our lives. When we're not focused, it's not finished. So lastly, we see God brings the focus on Jesus when he says, it is finished. And as he says it's finished, as he says, my spirit's in your hands, the darkness overcomes the light. As the light goes out in the world and the earthquake shatters the earth and the temple There was a curtain there that separated God's spirit, the Holy of Holies, from the inner part and from the Temple Mount. That curtain was ripped because Jesus said, hang out, just just relax a little bit. I know it's gonna be super stressful, but the Holy Spirit's gonna come and then you can go to the whole world and tell everyone about me and I'll give you powers to heal, speak in different languages, and you're gonna have boldness like you've never had before. The Holy Spirit's coming. And that's what Jesus was saying, wait, but he wanted everyone's focus on this work. So darkness came, earthquake, temple curtain shattered, and and we see the testimony from the centurion, certainly this man was innocent, he says, and the crowds went away beating their chests, realizing, "Uh uh-oh, we got the wrong guy. Maybe we should have listened to Pilate and asked for Jesus, not Barabbas. But God's perfect plan worked perfectly as he showed humility on display all throughout so that when we're suffering, we know how to be humble. And we see... Joseph of Arimathea used his position on the council, not agreeing with the decision to kill Jesus, said, can I have the body? They said, yeah, I think we might have made a bad decision there. And they took his body. And and then thirdly, the women realizing that the Sabbath was tomorrow, they had to hurry and get the body in the tomb. They knew where it was so they could come back and finish the, the preparations because they couldn't touch a dead body on Saturday. So they saw him go in on Friday. That's why they rushed to the tomb, because women, type A, you want to take care of your Lord and Savior, make sure he's all done up, all ready for for death, because that's what they believed. And then they were confused, dismayed, but also rejoicing. On Sunday, there was no body, which if that was me, I'd be like, sweet, I don't have to touch a dead body and do all the preparations. We're good. This is awesome, but where is he? But the women were like, all the emotions, right? All the stuff, like, uh uh-oh, that's why they wanted to find the body. They're like, wait, we need to make sure he's prepared. And Jesus is like, no, there's no more work. On the cross, I said, it is finished. 
Don't go back to religion. Don't go back to a pastor. Don't go back to another podcast. Don't go back to this thing thinking that if you show up in a building or a place with people and make yourself look good, it's not going to work. Humility is repenting and turning from sin and turning to him. And the clearest picture as we wrap up, it's a, probably the thing we, we use the least and dread the most at a gym. It's a treadmill, right? Like the treadmill, whenever I'm on that thing, I'm like, oh, this is the, and, and then they put a giant 40 inch screen. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'll run through Venice. And you're running through there. And I'm like, this, and I look around. I'm like, I haven't left the gym. This is a lie. Like I haven't gone this far, even though I think I did. And I'm like, let's try the Alps. Maybe that's a little more, you know, running through a, the trail, and it's like, this isn't a legit trail run. Like, I'm not afraid of mosquitoes or rattlesnakes or mountain lions in that order. You know, it's like the most terrifying thing is coming back all pimple-faced. I'm like, no, it's mosquitoes. They're bad, this run. But you think you're running, and you think you're getting far away when you're sinning. And Satan's like, dude, there's no way God even has a clue where you are. You're up in the Alps somewhere, gone. In reality, you're just on a treadmill, and he's right behind you. Or he's running on the treadmill next to you going, hey, I'm on the cross with you. This is brutal. Can we be done yet? Like, I'm done. I'm going to give my spirit up to God. I have obeyed, obeyed him perfectly. I'm going to save you. Let's get done with this silliness. Let's turn to me. And I have an adventure. I have a purpose. I have a plan for you. I'm going to prosper you. My peace will never leave you or forsake you. Are you going to come to me now? Are we done with the silliness? And we're like, oh, let's try this other route. Let's try this other thing. And we think it's going to help us. But really, we're not going to have near the experience we think we are if we just turn to Jesus. And we think we're far away, but we've never been further from the truth. He's right next to us. He's right behind us. All we have to turn and see that he never left us. He promised, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And so even if we turn a degree or two, we think, oh, he's not going to. He is. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. John wrote, hey, when you mess up, all you have to do is repent. And he's faithful and just to forgive you of every and anything. That's the good news of the gospel. The hard thing is you have to be humble. And that's what's so difficult because rather than being humble, we would rather just be subjective. Rather than surrender, we would reinterpret the facts. So as we come to the end, I encourage you, if you've yet to believe in Jesus and you're acknowledging and seeing, okay, I've said, thought, and done things, even if it was one lie, but I need Jesus to forgive me of that. And as he reveals himself, he'll tell you, here's more ways I wanna make you look, think, and act like me so I can fill you with my love that that love can flow through you to others. And for those of us who believe, in Jesus and have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. We're gonna take a minute as the elements are passed for you to connect with, with God and say thank you for showing me what it looks like to humbly serve others, especially when there's suffering involved. And maybe the Spirit can reveal in a way where you've, you've gone back to prideful or selfish ways and an opportunity to, to surrender or confess your sin, that God would forgive you and restore you. And we pray for, for those who have yet to believe that you'd believe today by simply confessing with your mouth that Jesus is God and he died in your place, but God raised him again three days later to give you new life in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for showing us that as we humbly receive the truth, 
We can show our humility when we're repentant, Lord, knowing fully that our, our peace only will come when our souls rest in the finished work of cross, of the cross of Christ. God, we, we pray as we acknowledge again the cost to see the Savior on the cross that day in all of the things that it set in motion. The revolution that we are a part of now began that day when Jesus hung on a cross in our place, knowing that we too were guilty as those thieves were, as Barabbas was. May we not walk away as what we know, Barabbas walked away indifferent, not acknowledging Jesus as the Savior. But may the thief be better representing us, that we would acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and Savior and be reminded that he's promised we will be with him in paradise because he paid for our sin. He gives us new life. For that we say thank you. And we ask that your spirit would allow us to be more humble than we have been to display the humility of Christ in every and any area in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.